Welcome to Multifamily Real Estate Investing, presented by Mara Poling. My name is Pat Poling. I am the founder and CEO of Mara Poling. Happy to be with you this week for the first in our five-part series on total return. Total return security. What makes a multifamily real estate investment so secure? You've heard us talk about the security of these investments for some time. How can you maximize the security of your investment in a multifamily asset? And why would you want to maximize it as opposed to simply optimizing it? That's what we're going to talk about this week, and I hope you'll enjoy the session. As always, if you have questions, feel free to shoot me an email, pat at marapoling.com, M-A-R-A-P-O-L-I-N-G.com. Please swing by the website. Lots of great content there at the Learning Center. Uh, if you want to learn more about The Total Return, we have some great content there, some downloads, as well as some uh, web uh, recordings, webinar sessions that you can uh, uh, take a look at. So with that, let's go ahead and dive in. Last week, and if you didn't listen to last week's session, uh, when you get done today, you can go back and take a listen. Last week, we talked about returns in multifamily and how to go a little beyond the conservative versus aggressive nomenclature and really look at the elements that make up a total return. And I described those as uh, security, stability, uh, the generation of income or cash flow, the creation of wealth or equity growth, and then tax advantages, those five elements. And that that's a handy way to not only score an investment you might be looking to invest in, but if you're going to be designing an investment, whether it's uh, you building your own portfolio through uh, acquiring single family assets or duplexes or fourplexes or whatever it might be, uh, or the way we go about it at Mara Polling or other sponsors uh, in terms of trying to maximize certain components of the total return and optimize the others. So this is the first in the sessions that we're going to go through each of those in some detail, and we're talking today about security. When we say security, when I talk about security, I'm talking about that intrinsic value that's baked into, honestly, every multifamily deal that's out there. And that is the, the need that a multifamily investment provides uh, or meets is that of providing people a home, right? A place to, lead, to live. Um, if you think about a hierarchy of needs, right? Good old Maslow. Right down there on the bottom, right, at the foundation are things like food and shelter. And you could probably add some other elements that if you were thinking, okay, what's, what are the bare essentials that I would need as a human being to survive? Well, I need water uh, to drink and I need food to eat and I need to be able to protect myself somehow from uh, the elements. Uh, and, you know, if you took maybe a step beyond there, you get to things like, you know, I need to have uh, some health care and I need to have some, uh, some income of some source. Maybe those are more modern things around the way our society works today. But, gosh, go all the way back to uh, prehistoric days, right? And, uh, you know, we had to eat and we had to have a place to sleep. 
So there's an inherent security element just baked into this from the standpoint that unlike other products, right, uh, unlike the other consumer goods that are available to the population, uh, it's very hard to imagine someone ever saying um, affirmatively, yeah, I don't really need a place to live. Now, we're setting aside the fact that there may be some in our society that have made those kinds of choices. Uh, and a, a wonderful example is there's a whole bunch of folks that, especially in the last year, have purchased recreational vehicles, and they now live full-time in their RVs traveling the country. Well, even they made a choice about how they were going to get that need met, and they had it met by virtue of buying themselves an RV or a motorhome or something. They still said, though, I need, I need shelter. I need a place to live. So uh, how, how do people solve that need? Well, they can go buy a home, right? And, and the majority of people in the country, that is how they take care of it, right? 60% plus of the households in the country have addressed the need for shelter by purchasing a home. They might own it outright. An awful lot of them have some degree of debt on it. And there's clearly people that don't own homes that are in the rental space that aspire to home ownership, that want to own a home, that see that as part of their uh, as part of their future, and so that's a way that the answer uh, the problem gets answered. How do I have a, uh, a a place to hang my hat and sleep at night? Is I own a home. But if it's only 60%, little over 60%, then that means close to 40% of the population, close to 40% of the households, don't own their home. They still have to have a place, right? So they rent. Now, they might rent a single-family residence, right? Uh, but the overwhelming majority rent an apartment, uh, could be the kind of apartment that we, for example, invest in, a Class B garden-style, mid-'80s build. Uh, that's a very, very popular uh, element of the multifamily space. But there's lots of other kinds of apartments out there, right? There's high-rise apartments, and there's uh, Class C properties. There's Class A, more luxury-style um, uh, multifamily properties. So there's lots of different ways to address that particular need. But it is a need, and, and that's the reason that we think every multifamily investment absolutely checks the security box. Now, the question becomes, if you wanted to maximize security, if you wanted security to be at the top of the list, how would you design that particular investment? Well, there's really two components to it. One I've already alluded to, and that is the type of asset itself. So while everyone needs a place to live, and 40% or so of the population is going to choose to rent, not everyone in that rental community is going to choose every single type of rental opportunity that's out there. So I'll give you a, a couple examples. A Class A luxury property. There are very few renters, I would expect, that if shown a Class A property and told that 
don't worry about the rent. If you, if you like this, you can live here, and I'll rent it to you for whatever it is you can pay me. There are probably very few renters that wouldn't say, yeah, I'd like that. Look, look how luxurious this is. Look how nice the finishes are in the interior. And look, I have covered parking or a private garage or security and beautiful amenities uh, on the property. Look at the gorgeous pool area, for example, and so on. There's many, many things that are attractive about that. When you overlay, though, the cost of the rent in that property, which is required because of the cost of development or improvement of those assets to achieve that status, then many people are going to say the value proposition isn't there for me. And so a Class A property absolutely checks that box as having a security component because for a select portion of the consumer base, that will be a way to meet the need for shelter. But it won't be for the majority. The majority of renters are not simply going to be able to afford or make the choice to expend their disposable income to make up the difference to live in a Class A property. So a Class A property, while being a secure uh, place uh, to, uh, to invest, at least from the nature of the property, won't be as secure as some of the other classes and some of the other styles that are more prevalent. Um, uh, in many ways, if you think about it, uh, the product that can be offered that is appealing to and financially viable to the largest segment of the rental population is going to generate the highest degree of security. And that is Class B. There's an argument to be made that Class C is equally or very close to the same level of security. Uh, and I believe that that's fairly true, uh, with one distinction I'll talk about in a moment. So Class B that we often talk about as the Goldilocks class is not only an extremely prevalent product, right? Every market you go into has Class B product. It is the dominant product in the marketplace. In some of the markets that we're in, it's 70 or 80% of the product offerings are Class B. Although right now, new development, and this has been true for quite a few years now, all the new development is really in the Class A space. It's more of an economics issue uh, than a demand issue. Um, uh, which actually makes Class B an even nicer investment uh, because we don't have uh, significant increases in supply going on. Uh, so Class B meets that security uh, need for a broad range of folks in the, uh, in the population. And Class C can do that as, um, as well, um, but the uh, distinction that I would draw is, one, the availability of Class C. There's more Bs in the marketplace than there are, um, than there are Cs. And uh, Bs are very targeted for, if you will, the fat part of the bell curve in terms of uh, median uh, income. When you move down to the C space, that shifts a little 
uh, down from that median income, and in many instances, C's will have a different rent-to-income qualifier. So uh, in a C, you might see two and a half times uh, rent in income as the ratio that's needed for someone to qualify. In a class B, you'll see some two and a half. You're going to see a lot of threes. We, we focus on threes. That also makes it a more secure market from the standpoint that uh, the tenants that move into a class B are generally going to have more financial resources to weather the ups and downs that happen during the normal uh, movement throughout the economic cycle as opposed to uh, class C's. So the class of the asset, the type of the asset, is one of the ways that you can maximize security. The other is the way in which the investment itself is absolutely structured. If you were truly going to maximize security and wanted to have um, as almost zero risk, you could say, well, I'm not going to put any leverage on the asset at all. I'm going to own it free and clear. And you would absolutely have no interest rate risk. You would have no uh, risk of default to a lender. Now, you'd still have a risk of a default if, for example, you didn't pay your property taxes or something else along those lines, but it's reasonable to assume that if you don't have a mortgage, you're going to have more than enough cash flow to, uh, to address uh, those other items. Is there a difference between having no debt and having, say, 10% debt, right? So I have a I have a $10 million property. Is there a difference between having zero debt or having a million-dollar loan? I would argue that, no, there, there effectively isn't. The cost of money is so modest at this particular point in time, and really has been for an extended period of time, that, um, that carrying a 10% debt load is not significant. I think you could argue up to 50% and you really don't have a significant shift in security. We go a step further and use a metric that looks at the break-even occupancy, the level of occupancy that needs to be required in order to generate enough cash to cover all the expenses a property has and to cover the debt service that's associated with it. It's a very similar thought process to a debt service coverage ratio, and we've talked about that uh, before. If that's a term you're not familiar with, you can, again, find some content on our website that'll talk about that, or you can always shoot me an email. I'm happy to go into some more detail for you personally. Um, so it's very similar to that. Uh, but if we look at that ratio, and, and generally what we're looking for in break-even occupancy is we want to be able to cover a 150% to a 200% uh, vacancy rate uh, compared to the historic high vacancy. So if the historic high vacancy at an asset's been 10%, we want to be able to handle anywhere from 15 to 20%, meaning that we'd want a break-even occupancy in the mid to low 80s. Typically, our assets are going to have break-even occupancies in that lower 80 range and more often than not, somewhere in the 70s, which means when you manipulate the uh, amount of leverage we're bringing, we're probably going to end up in that 70% range to start with, and that will decrease 
fairly quickly as the assets grow in value from doing value add work and so on. But that starting out point, and that's the, the piece that you really have to be focused on, we think until you get to that break-even occupancy level, until you get up to that, that the amount of leverage that we're putting on really has essentially very little risk associated with it. Is the risk zero? No, it's not. Um, but we do believe you can uh, maximize the priority of uh, the security and investment by investing in the class that has the greatest uh, breadth in terms of uh, consumer interest, and that we believe is class B, and then structuring the debt so that it can generate a nice return elsewhere in the return profile, cash generation and equity growth, the creation of wealth, um, but not do so at the expense of security. Now, if I want to optimize one of the other uh, or, pardon me, maximize one of the other elements of the return. Let's say that I want to maximize uh, wealth creation. Then I'm going to go and look to purchase an asset that's in a low cap rate market or a market where cap rates are moving lower. Uh, so I have a lot of leverage to apply to my NOI growth. And I'm going to lever the asset up. If I can get 80% debt, I'm going to go do that. Now, that might make my break-even occupancy 87%. Well, that means I could only handle a little more than the historic high vacancy before I'd potentially have cash flow issues. Is there a risk associated with that? Yes. You're going to see a much higher return, and that's, that's not a bad investment. It's just a different investment than if you're trying to maximize the security component of a total return. So every investment in multifamily is going to check that security box. And really, no matter what you do, there's an element of security that's just baked in. It's just hardwired into a multifamily investment, as opposed to investing in some sort of luxury product that's out there. You can optimize it by doing some of the things that I talked about, and you can absolutely maximize it by focusing on the class of the asset and the structure of the uh, debt, uh, and essentially the structure of the financial components uh, of, the, um, of the asset to do that. Now, next week, we're going to talk about what I would describe as the sister element within the five uh, pieces of the total return, the sister element to security, and that is stability. For our investments, for our investment thesis at Mara Polling, we believe security and stability are the foundation upon which the rest of the asset uh, rests. And so we look to maximize those components uh, and then see how we can optimize the others. And so next week, uh, we'll go into stability and talk about why multifamily is as stable uh, as it is, what some of the data has to say about that. And again, what can be done to maximize stability and what can be done if the focus is to maximize one of the other elements of the return, but what can be done to still optimize the level of stability in an asset? So I hope you found this week valuable. If you have any questions, uh, either about this week's content or that you want to make sure I address in the next coming weeks when we talk about stability, 
the generation of income, the creation of wealth, and tax advantages, feel free to shoot me an email, pat at marapolling.com. If you haven't subscribed already on whatever platform you're listening to us, please uh, hit that subscribe uh, button so that you don't miss out on our content. And I'll see you next week on another episode of Multifamily Real Estate Investing presented by Mara Polling.